0: The Global North's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The
1: ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the Global South. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio collective podcast. Listen and
0: subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one, and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the One Recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, fellow sapiens. I'm Chip Gowell. I'm Esteban Gomez.
2: I'm Jen Shannon. I'm Aura. And I'm Yuli.
0: And we are a new generation of anthropologists and archeologists who love to investigate what makes us human. Over the years, we've gone to space to find out whether it's a human place. Three. One, and lift on, lift off. And we've wondered why some people eat bugs. It's the black ants that when they die, they actually release citric acid. And others don't. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> and we've learned how reconnecting with ancestors from uncovering sunken slave ships to identifying hidden burial grounds are human acts of reclamation. That
3: was according to the wishes of the descendant community.
0: We are Sapiens, a podcast for everything human. And we can't wait to answer your questions about the human experience. Please subscribe now, wherever you're listening to this show, and check us out at sapiens.org.
1: Dalit people constitute about 16% of the Indian population. The word Dalit means scattered or broken, which speaks to the literal and defining exclusions that Dalit people face in South Asia every day. The title of this episode, Where There Are No Butchers, There Are Cinnamon Buns, are words I borrow from Vinay Kumar, one of my guests on this episode, who described the sensory impacts of these infrastructural exclusions for caste-oppressed people better than I ever could. I'm Meher Varma, your host. This is Bad Table Manners. caste system is unique to India and Nepal, is more than 2,000 years old and consists of a hierarchy of social groups based on their supposed ritual purity within Hinduism. Dalit people experience social exclusion and oppression in their everyday lives due to being placed at the lowest rungs of the hierarchy. Often they're not allowed to cross the line dividing their part of the village from that that are occupied by higher castes. They may not use the same world's, visit the same temples, or even drink from the same cups and tea stalls. Dalit children are frequently made to sit at the back of classrooms. In what has been considered as India's hidden apartheid, entire villages in many Indian states remain segregated by caste. Many Dalit communities have been historically relegated to the most ritually impure occupations, such as cleaning animal carcasses and disposing of human waste. Despite the abolition of caste in the Indian Constitution in 1950, caste oppression continues until today. It became especially visible during the COVID pandemic when Dalit people were left to dispose of and cremate bodies infected with COVID. Food practices are critical sites where norms and hierarchy of ritual purity are enacted. So it's fitting that a podcast about food in South Asia should include a focused discussion about not only social hierarchy, a theme that permeates almost every episode, but Dalit experiences of it. High-caste Hindus have historically reproduced their ritually pure status by avoiding meat, while beef consumption, which is considered the most polluting, is associated with Muslims and caste-oppressed groups. Unlike in the West, vegetarianism in India aligns with powerful and dominant political and religious positions. Yet, as we will discover, what people do in private and what they do in public can be quite contradictory. Before we dive into our discussion, it's necessary to note that conversations about caste and even caste oppression in the public sphere in India continue to be dominated by privileged high caste voices. In many cases, high caste or Savarna upper middle class privileged scholars and commentators like myself have failed to acknowledge how their own privilege has allowed them to arrive where they are. Further, as one of my guests told me off the record, quote, high caste people will just never know, end quote. I proceed with this episode knowing that I can never truly know what caste oppression feels like. I'm not trying to speak for, but with those who have experienced caste oppression. By centering the voices and perspectives of Dalit food scholars and experts in this episode, I hope to learn, along with you, about the rich and complex food histories and stories that are often excluded from hegemonic South Asian culinary lexicons. Vinay Kumar, who is currently working as a teacher, is my first guest on this episode. I've been grateful for all our conversations, including the difficulty of him appearing as a guest on the show. The politics of representing Dalit people for an English language podcast is something that we actually spoke about at length.
2: All the food that my friends loved that I took to class was things like idlis and bisibale bath and things like that. And my mom makes an insanely good chicken biryani, all of that. But none of that they could ever taste because I would never take that to school.
1: I'm also grateful to the Amsterdam-based artist Rajshree Goody, who shared personal memories about food and eating that allow us to see how joy and suffering very much coexist in her experience of life as a Dalit person. She's also the creator of an amazing ongoing project of creating Dalit cookbooks which we'll talk about a little later in the episode.
3: My mother and my grandparents and ancestors did go through a lot and did see poverty that, you know, will be unimaginable even to me. But... My mother and my aunts and uncles are also now incredibly empowered individuals. They are working very hard. They're giving their families great chances at an amazing future. And and joy is an essential part of that. But that joy has also arisen through struggle. In
1: 2020, I came across Vinay's article titled Blood Fry and Other Dalit Recipes in Goya, which is a wonderful online food journal in India. I was one of the many who found this article not only beautifully written, but also urgent. And when I spoke to Vinay, I confirmed my intuition that this piece couldn't have been easy to write. And in our conversation, I learned easy is nothing when your name, your last name and what you eat are pieces of information you learn to distance yourself from as a form of protection.
2: It starts with me having this training from my parents. I have to call it training because I've been told that many times to never say the caste I identify with or the caste that I belong to because it changes the dynamic of interactions with people. A few times when I did as a child end up at a classmate's house, the first or second question were trying to find out my caste, saying what's your name, what's your full name? And when they couldn't find out my full name, they'd ask for what my parents do what is my father's name and when none of them was revealing enough they'd ask me what is my caste there is a constant demand from the society around me to find out what is my caste and they obviously also add on to that saying you know we're progressive we don't really care about caste but what is your caste i mean if you don't care about what my caste is why do you want to know It is the garb of progressiveness they use to find out, to realize how they can box people out or in in their lives and society for them. And I think a month ago, one of my neighbors asked my mother what our caste was and we've been living there for two years. And yeah, they've only started interacting with us very recently, but... Everybody wants to know and she obviously does not want to tell them our caste because she does not want to be left out and I completely understand and that's something every Talit person who wants to access these spaces, you don't want to be isolated. These connections mean everything. I mean from simple access to a neighborhood store or a where you find a nice tailor to getting a job at a reputed whatever company, university, college comes from contacts. It does not always mean if you have a good CV, means nothing if you don't have somebody to push it forward.
1: Lunchbox trauma and recess racism are common experiences for kids of color. When we were in international schools, I remember my sister and I pleading with my mother to replace our strong smelling samosas and parathas with bagels and cream cheese. But the context of my negotiation is not comparable to the violence many caste oppressed people face at school. Brahminizing your lunch, i.e., tweaking it to mirror something closer to what a high caste Brahmin kid might eat, is not just a choice that your parents may or may not give in to. It's about safety. For a little more context, Brahmins, to protect the monopoly over land and food access, created three levels of food. Sathvik, Rajasik, and Tamasik. The top, which is Sathvik food, includes only vegetables and some dairy, and it's considered high caste food. While anything from scraps to rats are polluted and considered Tamasik, Those who consume this food are similarly contaminated by its supposed ritual impurity.
2: At school, I've never taken meat or even eggs. I sat with a whole classroom full of people who never brought meat to class. I don't think we had that many vegetarians. Maybe the teacher was. I vaguely remember a couple of comments about getting meat to school, but I can't remember what exactly those comments were. But yeah, there were things that were said. And classmates, a couple of them would make faces if somebody else brought meat. My sister and I were very clear with my mother that we'd never take meat to school. So it wasn't something somebody told us, but the group we sat with did this. As adults now, I'm trying to reflect back on our own food culture at home. We'd only eat chicken or mutton in a conversation with the larger other not meat eating communities. So the head of a goat or the intestines or the legs, there are enough dishes that are prepared through these. And we never talk about most of these with others except people from our caste or family. With them, we talk, we have conversations, we discuss recipes. But with people outside, the conversation cuts back to maybe mutton and chicken preparations, fish, but not to other parts. At the most, somebody exoticizes a bit of this. Uh, the intestines of a goat is called poti. And that is a delicacy because it's a lot of work to cook here. It's the same thing as peta in Rajasthan. So it's that one food, but it's also, there's a lot of other politics in cooking peta because it's the intestine, it needs to be cleaned, there is, you know, it is the animal's waste product.
1: Vinay alerted me to the expertise and care required for particular meat preparations that were otherwise looked down upon or regarded as quote-unquote dirty by so-called upper-caste communities the idea that dirty food is a food that requires great skill to make stayed with me much after this conversation. But even if we do recognize the skill that it takes to make these preparations, I question the implications of thinking about Dalit cuisine as a standalone one. I asked Vanessa more.
2: I would equate this to the identification of how do you see your Dalit politics playing out? Do you want to fight for being a Dalit as different from the Hindu majoritarian population? Or are you saying we are Hindus, we're just a different group, we need to be one? Because it's not the same for me. I don't see myself as a Hindu person. My experiences aren't the same. The foods we eat are not the same. Some of these things might be similar because I know enough people who don't add onions to their foods or garlic to their foods. These are little things that you think make a difference. But the same dish that I cook at home, which is a very basic tomato goju tastes extremely different from somebody from a Brahmin household. It's the same dish, the same recipe, but it does not taste alike.
1: I asked the same question of the artist Rajshree Goody, who also self-identifies as Dalit. Like Vinay, she was careful to articulate the importance of associations.
3: I do feel like Dalit food is a separate category, but not necessarily through the types of food or the cuisine or something like that, but through our associations with it, through our you know emotional and physical memories of it, how we navigate day-to-day with access and inaccess to food, the kinds of choices we make. So I feel like these emotions and daily things that are happening around the food are what define something as Dalit food or not. So you and I could be eating the same rice and dal, but we will never be tasted the same way. And I'm not saying that that means that, oh, I'm going to, you know, think about all the suffering that has happened for thousands of years through this bowl of rice and dal, but I will have a different association with it. You know, on some level, that's true for everybody that all of our memories of things are not always the same.
1: I talked to Vinay more about his recipe for blood fry. But before we get to questions about recipes and preparation methods, he points out something crucial. Before you can cook, you need access to ingredients. And where access is not granted, a cooked meal is not a guaranteed outcome. Blood fry requires blood, obviously, which requires a trip to the butcher. Many urban centres in India are seeing a steady decline or disappearance of butcher shops. This is no accident. It is a socio-political reshaping of a city that tells you who cities are made for and who they should exclude.
2: When the piece came up, when I pitched the piece and I had to write about it, we hadn't made blood fry in a long time. So I did have to go to the butcher, find out how can I get blood and things like that. That's when it wasn't as easy as you can walk into the butcher on a Sunday morning and pick it up anymore because... They would have prepped the meat by 6 a.m. So the blood would already be gone. So I'd have to let him know the day before that I'd like blood. And it's one step away. But in the long run, where we're looking at meat that is frozen and being sold and not moving away from the butcher, then you won't have access to blood. For me, at least being a Bangalorean, for me where I know where my nearest butcher is, it took me a day. But if you're somebody in a new neighborhood and you don't know where your butcher is, I don't even know how you're going to get access to these things and how you start the conversation with the butcher because it was awkward for me. I didn't know how to tell him I wanted blood and I didn't know how to ask for it. And the conversation of access again changes because I was having a conversation with somebody just yesterday, a teacher, about how there are maybe 20 or 30 percent vegetarians in Bangalore and everybody else is a meat eater. And yet... Our signage in the cities for pure veg meals, are pure veg food, and the city's direction is offering pure and clean vegetarian food. The control lies with the 30%, so the access is changing. The meat you get is all frozen in supermarkets now, the butcher is slowly dying out. These are places that are now being ghettoized in some sense because you don't find butcher on the main road or in the central parts of the city. You find them in parts of the city that's been ghettoized where the migrants, where the Dalits live. These are ideas and conversations that I think are connected very deeply for me to explore.
1: Where there are cinnamon buns, there are no butchers are words I paraphrase from Vinay, which became somehow etched in my mind. These words haunted me because they tell you how discrimination is embodied by plans for modernity and how this idea of Indian modernity manifests itself in the old factory wars where the buns and the fragrance of buns that are indigenous to no one, win. As Vinay describes, the butcher shops did not entirely disappear. But a certain kind of meat consumption certainly became not only rarer, but even more dangerous to consume.
2: But the butcher shops still exist because there were enough people buying. But what disappeared slowly was the shops that sold beef. Around 2014 to sixteen, I remember a period where I think we were having a lot of conversation about beef then because Maharashtra just imposed the meat pan and everybody started eating beef or picking up beef as a sign of protest. It's great that you want to protest that somebody's food choices were taken away, but it's far more deep and intrinsic than just taking away access to a certain kind of food. But that conversation did spark something. Even if it was surface level, it did spark something important. And it got people to notice the politics of food or how food is being used to control people. I mean, when we have a population and a culture of this sort, and you suddenly see beef that's stores open at 5 a.m. and shut by 8 a.m., or very selectively sell meat to those people who've only been buying from them for a while, there's a change in pattern. There's a fear that's lurking around. So it is very scary of a thought to say that I have to look behind my back when I'm buying beef.
1: Being a Dalit person, as Vinay is making clear, means dealing with everyday oppression. Rajshri's point, too, illuminates how this oppression is not just when you want to buy meat, but it's always present. It's evident in, for example, how far Dalit people have to walk to get water in a village, as to not contaminate the water of others. Or the experience of hunger rather than eating, which is what defines some Dalit experiences. I want to emphasize some, and some not all as an important caveat in this discussion that came up in the email exchanges that Rajshree and I had. There are millions of Dalit people across India, and the Dalit experience should never be seen as a homogenous one.
2: I mean, the concept and the word seem very exotic, but then I had a conversation with my mother and she was telling me how She remembers going out to a lake to do laundry and on the way back, they'd stop at a huge field, pick up a bunch of leaves that are edible, come back and make a big pot of leaf curry. And this was not 50 years ago. This was in the 1989, 1990, 1991. These are practices that have happened. Most often Dalits don't have the vocabulary for it for the rest of the world to find out. It's great that you're noticing them, but... There are other issues that you need to probably focus on instead of exoticizing the Dalit experience. Normalize it. That being Dalit is not a problem. The idea that Dalit still is a conversation you need to have in the 21st century. Tell people that, you know, Dalit people are normal, they're not dirty. It's okay. I mean, COVID has made a lot of these conversations starker when people suddenly are talking about, you know, we've always followed these practices of hygiene and clean and purity and didn't touch other people. They're trying to reinforce the idea of pollution and saying Dalits are dirty and that they're trying to push through COVID. I'm sorry, uh, Dalit people don't carry COVID. Neither did they carry any other pollutants, so it will be dirty. So these equations are problematic when they are happening in air without the context of the reality. And there aren't enough people working in the ground or people with these experiences to have these conversations. And that's because of a lack of a representative society we have.
1: Speaking about preservation makes me think how in very recent years I have observed how new trendy food terms like sustainable, zero waste and foraging have been used to describe Dalit food. Yet these words come from very elite Michelin star worlds, from luxury and not scarcity. I wonder what these appropriations meant for Vinayh.
3: I think even getting a daily meal a day is resistance. It doesn't have to be so loud or it doesn't have to be a big act, but just, you know, making sure that your family has enough to eat or perhaps selling your food so that, you know, your sons and daughters or your children can go to school. I mean, that's also part of this food history perhaps starving yourself to make sure that you have enough money for a uniform for your child. So all of these acts, I think it's quite large, but any act to do with pushing yourself to survive and grow for another day, that can be an act of resistance.
1: Rashi also offered an interesting perspective on what happens when words like sustainable which come from a privileged Western context, are applied to Dalit cuisine.
3: So it's literally been a matter of life and death a lot of the time. And maybe that's why it's sustainable. Also, we've never had access as a community to fresh fruits and vegetables all the time or the best rice or the best dal or the best wheat. Often in sort of various villages, the way it's organised we would be given a share of the crops but most often it's been you know the bit of the crops that nobody else would want to eat perhaps these are the part of the crops that are also the healthiest but maybe they weren't seen as very tasty or right for upper caste families to eat
1: while i was doing research for this interview i also read a few works of fiction and non-fiction written by dalit writers at first it struck me how much they talked about food But soon, I was reminded that these narratives are not about eating. They're about its antithesis, hunger. I asked Vinay how easy it is or isn't to actually talk about this.
2: It was very interesting because I remember having this conversation with a group of students. I was telling them how I'm starving and then they were really upset, saying, you don't know what it means to be starved. You don't know what that is, so please don't say starved. And this was a white person, this was a white woman who was saying this to me. And the assumption that just because I have this access to that conversation with them suddenly does not mean I don't know what starvation is, what hunger is, what is the real plight. There's a lot of assumptions going around for hunger and conversation. And the idea of being a Dalit person in the city space is to hide every other identity problem. I grew up in poverty for most of my childhood and young adult life. It's only recently that there is some financial stability in my life. I'm not even seeing anything else beyond financial stability. And this is what has given me access to where I work, the education. I've received the luxury of not looking for a job that pays more, but doing a job that gives me satisfaction. These are choices and luxuries I can make. And this is not supposed to be a luxury in most cases, but it is. Uh, At the end, my Goya piece was me talking about poverty and my hunger and starvation. It was me very honestly and earnestly talking about it. It was very difficult of a piece to write also because it was me publicly telling everybody what I went through and it did receive a lot of attention because it was an honest opinion, I guess. But how else am I going to tell you what I went through without telling you what it was?
1: Hey listeners, I'd like to tell you about another Whetstone Radio Collective show. It's called Fruit Love Letters. Each episode is a love letter to a fruit, like mango, pawpaw, or persimmon. Looking at history, science, and our eating habits, the show explores what our love of fruit says about us as people. You'll hear about why Americans had 20,000 varieties of apples at one point, and how blueberries became so ubiquitous. It's hosted by Jessamine Starr, a chef in Atlanta, Georgia, who happens to be obsessed with fruit. You can listen to Fruit Love Letters now, streaming wherever you get your podcasts. We now turn a bit more attention to conversations about resistance. As Rajshri describes on her website, her work, quote, attempts to decode and make visible the instances of everyday power and resistance within Dalit communities in India through writing, ceramics, photography, and sculptural works made with paper and found objects. We also talk more in depth about her recipe archives, or what she calls Dalit cookbooks. Research since about
3: 2016. Uh, particularly when there were a number of atrocities happening in India related to the beef ban. Many people from minority communities, Dalit or Muslim, were being attacked quite openly on the suspicion that they were consuming or transporting beef. And that really started a question in me that, you know, how does my community's food habits, how do they affect the fabric of this society so much? And is it much deeper than that? And, and it, it was much deeper than that. But then when I tried to look for a lot of writing on food histories in Dalit communities, there wasn't much. There were definitely a few, but there really wasn't much, especially no Dalit cookbooks at all.
1: Vajshri and I discuss the complexities of calling a collection of recipes that circulate within the Dalit community a cookbook. The context disrupts our traditional assumptions of one. Assumptions that the recipe is stable, your context is one where access to ingredients is guaranteed, and so on. But Rashi takes the complexities of these assumptions into account when she reflects on her own project. The sort of
3: popular imagination of a cookbook is quite straightforward. It's following a recipe that you don't know very well, and it's written down for you somewhere. And perhaps it's from your own community or culture passed down through your family, or perhaps it should transport you to exotic uh, lands and try foreign food through these recipes. And I think that's the sort of the conventional understanding of a cookbook. But what do you do when your community hasn't been allowed to read and write for centuries, hasn't allowed to be literate? So there's no way of passing down, forget food recipes, but you know, anything. For a majority of Dalit households for a long, long time, this sort of access would have been unimaginable. Even having a full kitchen and access to ingredients, I mean, we weren't allowed to even own land. So we had to rely on other people to give us food. Despite the complexities
1: of making Dalit cookbooks written in English, given the canon of Indian cookbooks that are out there, we talk about how this is still a very worthwhile disruption.
3: That's also something that, like, how can you write a cookbook and um, who's it going to appeal to? So there are all these layers to it, but at the same time, because of all these things, only those with the power and access, with all of these things like literacy, you know, economic wealth, social wealth, only their recipes get shown as this is Indian food. So Indians are normally seen by outsiders as mainly vegetarian, as perhaps eating very fresh food. If you're going to be including recipes with meat, then it's normally just chicken or mutton or, or fish. It's hardly ever be for pork or any other meat. So I really wanted to question these things. And that's why I create little booklets out of strange recipes that I do call cookbooks. books.
1: In the popular, privileged imagination of food, the worst kind of food is unhealthy or not good for you. But Dalit food is not even considered legitimate enough to enter a conversation about nutrition. It's too tainted with the moral flavor of pollution
3: it's not just not good for your body but impure kind of signifies that it's not good for your soul it's uh, associated with leftovers it's associated with eating animals that have you know died previously it's associated with these rather negative things also hunger and these are specifically you know because of rules that have been set in caste based structures You know, a Dalit person might have to have the role of becoming a manual scavenger. So if a cow or an animal dies in the village, then that might be their appointed role to get rid of it. And uh, getting rid of such a large animal often means that you just have to eat it, as much of it that is fresh, and then you can save the rest. So all these connotations are sort of seen as impure in upper caste spaces. I asked
1: Rajri to read a recipe from her work, for lack of a better term.
3: And while she
1: was doing it, I felt frustrated at the word recipe and for having to use it. Frustrated for all that it leaves out and all that it assumes.
3: During a wedding, sit outside with huge baskets. After the baratis have eaten, the dirty leaf plates might be put in your baskets. Take them home to save the juthan sticking to them. Little bits of puris, bits of sweetmeats, a little bit of vegetable. Eat the juthan with relish. Lick it all up. If the Bharatis have not left enough scraps on their patals, denounce them as gluttons. Your elders might narrate in thrilled voices stories of Bharatis who had left several months of juthan. So this recipe I uh, adapted from a book called Jutan by Om Prakash Valmiki. And I think this was one of his childhood experiences of going as a group to weddings that were happening in the village and waiting. Outside with his friends or siblings and waiting to get all of their leftovers. And then with their leftovers, they'd eat some of them and then they'd also try and save them, try and dry them if there was more. So that, that bit where the end, at the end, the elders are saying, you know, oh, in our days, the Bharatis would leave several months of Jutan, but we could survive on months on these leftovers. I think that's a really powerful part of, of this history that you're stuck perhaps in the cycle of living on leftovers, of begging, but you also have to feel grateful when, when people you a lot.
1: Now getting to the larger question of resistance, one of the most powerful aspects of Rajshree's work, I think, is the room that it makes for joy. It's a way of telling stories that accounts for both emancipation and suffering. Her solo show in Bombay titled Eat With Great Delight featured photographs taken between 1984 and 2004 on point-and-shoot film cameras. It documented landmarks event in her family and everyday eating rituals. Though I haven't been lucky enough to see the images in person, I know just from looking at them online that Rajshree is showing us how hunger and satiation, poverty and laughter can all sit side by side.
3: I do want to give other people from other communities but also myself a complex understanding of caste like even you know as much as I've learned from my own family and from my own family history there's still uh, things that I'm studying and learning about my own community that are new and that give me a different perspective towards my own history. I'm also a very very privileged person from this community, I've had access to some of the best schooling and access to a variety of friends as well from different communities. And joy is a very essential part of my life and my family's life. My mother and my grandparents and ancestors did go through a lot and did see poverty that you know will be unimaginable even to me. But My mother and my aunts and uncles are also now incredibly empowered individuals. They are working very hard. They are giving their families great chances at an amazing future. And and joy is an essential part of that. But that joy has also arisen through struggle, through resistance, through pushing, through every single thing that you have to make sure that you do get access to a decent education you do fight for getting a good job and you have to work hard at it every single day so it's not a joy that i can take for granted it's not something that has come easy and we've worked really hard at it That's not to say that everybody has to, you know, work hard uh, or something like that, but it's a part of the history of my community that I want to highlight because there are many, many, many individuals and families like ours who are just trying every single day to get out of this caste system. And that needs to be respected, that needs to be acknowledged, but at the same time, The struggle and the atrocities and the horrific things that are still happening to a majority of our people, that too needs to be acknowledged. So it is a bit of a struggle to me sometimes to highlight rather depressing moments that are happening. But at the same time, I try and balance that with joyful moments as well. And it's true even in the cookbooks, even in the recipes. Many of them can be quite sad. Many of them can be quite heartbreaking. But each of the autobiographies always have, you know, positive relationships with food as well. Feasting, celebrating with family, you know, just feeling grateful that you're able to eat and enjoy yourself. So I try and include those into my recipes as well. I don't want to just sort of make it seen as if we're all just victims, because we're not.
1: When discrimination is both embodied and reproduced by the system, I think about which acts constitute resistance for Dalit people. The most cited or perhaps biggest example in public discourse is the beef stole. Here's a little more context. According to Bloomberg, from 2016 to 2019, Radical cow protection groups in India were responsible for killing at least 44 people, mostly Muslim and Dalit, who were suspected of buying or consuming beef, even though beef consumption is legal in several Indian states. In response, discussions about eating beef and foods that are considered Dalit in public emerged as a form of resistance. I turn again to Vinay to talk about the possibilities of food as protest and whether public beef stalls constitute an effective rupture.
2: It's great that these conversations are starting, but do a little more because that's only a surface level act, right? It was very important in 2016 when Beef Pan happened, you did a beef stall and a beef festival and you started that conversation. Great, it's the place you started. it. But in 2021, your only form of protest is still eating beef. I think we need to do a little bit more say a little bit more, talk to more. I'm not asking them to get on the streets and pelt stones at somebody, but have conversation with somebody who says it's okay to not ban beef, right? It's okay to ban beef, right? It's not a big deal or it's go, Mata or whatever the conversation may be. Have a conversation with those people because it's more important you do that than eat beef on your own accord somewhere or don't tell your parents and eat beef with your friends or tell your parents I'm eating beef and walking away because that's not going to change anything. Your parents are still going to look at me or the people who eat beef differently. So have that conversation with them. That's going to do more than eating beef secretively or publicly and making a statement, I think.
1: I asked Rajshree the same, who in some ways echoes Vinesh's point. Just as discrimination is systemic and embodied, for them, powerful forms of resistance must be as well.
3: I think even getting a daily meal a day is resistance it doesn't have to be so loud or it doesn't have to be a big act but just you know making sure that your family has enough to eat or perhaps selling your food so that you know your sons and daughters or your children can go to school I mean that's also part of this food history perhaps starving yourself to make sure that you have enough money for a uniform for your child So all of these acts, I think it's quite large, but any act to do with pushing yourself to survive and grow for another day, that can be an act of resistance.
1: While I'm still contemplating what it means to be in a position of learning about suffering, it's also equally important to celebrate Dalit food, just like any other cuisine, for all its complexity and creativity, as Vinay and Rajshri have helped me to do. I'm deeply indebted to both of them for their time and patience. This episode is possible because of all the people who work behind the scenes. I'd like to thank my producer, Jennifer O'Neill, co-script editor, Vidya Balajander, audio editor, Evan Lindsay, researchers, Julia Fine and Carolyn Crosby, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer Celine Glassier, sound engineer Max Kodelchuk, associate producer Quentin Lebeau, and sound intern Simon Leivendar. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Bad Table Manners at whetstoneradio.com.